I can remember going back to women's retreats from years ago, and especially when my kids were, were little, there, there would be just all kinds of questions asked, right? I'd, I'd contact Susie, or we'd, we'd talk, and I'd say, it, it was a great morning. I got the kids up, out of bed, and they are dressed. And this was a major milestone, right? And her answer might be something like, yeah, but are they fed? And in my mind, I'm like, well, I didn't get that. I didn't say I didn't feed them, right? I just said they're dressed. And But, okay, note to self, feeding's important. And so maybe the next person, maybe I come here and Phil talks to me and said, hey, how'd, how'd your day go? I'm like, the kids are all fed. And and he might say, well, what about dressed, you know? And, and I, no, no, that fed's important. And Now, am I lying in any case? No, no. But I've, I haven't given you a blow-by-blow description of the day. You know, now when I talked, I talked to Susie last night, and I didn't even mention about being dressed or fed or anything, because it's amazing as they get older, they have capabilities to do some things for themselves. And so they can dress themselves, and they let me know when they're hungry, so that's not really an issue. And so last night, it was just jumping right to, hey, we went to Laser Quest last night, we had a great time, and and there was no none of the other questions. That doesn't mean we didn't do the other things, Right? I just am focusing on something that happened in the day that I knew she would be interested in hearing about and wanting to know what's going on. So many times when we come to the Bible, to God's Word, we use a different standard than we would use in normal communication. And people will use things like that about the Bible to say, see, there's errors in the Bible, it's not true. That person didn't mention every little detail that happened that day. And the other gospel writer mentioned this detail. And see, they're they're contradictory because they don't have the same details. Well, if I, as I just showed in our normal conversation about the kids being alive or fed or dressed or whatever, we may not use the same details. We may use different details with different people we're talking to. But that doesn't mean there's a showstopper Uh, of an error or a contradiction in God's Word. Today we want to talk about contradictions in God's Word. And this is a a topic that what used to be just part of a a point of one of the, of, of the week on inerrancy. But I chose this year to do it as its own sermon because this is so vital to understand how to deal with differences in God's Word or apparent contradictions in God's Word. There are things that will look Like, oh, okay, that doesn't agree with this, so how do we resolve that? And as I was studying for for this week, one of the things I did is I just went online and said, contradictions in the Bible. And some of it is I wanted to know what some of the major ones people are dealing with so I could use examples of those and help us resolve those, help us know how to deal with them. And the, the amount of things people have written in hatred of the Bible and despising the Bible and thinking there's 101 contradictions or 500 contradictions or thousands of contradictions. And the number of responses I saw that were things like, yeah, I used to believe in the Bible. I used to believe in God. But someone brought up this contradiction, so I knew it wasn't true, and so I abandoned that. It was heartbreaking to see some of the responses and the hatred and the vitriol surrounding the Word of God. And I would argue because it's a spiritual issue, because if we can get around the fact that this is God's very word, then I can get around being responsible for anything in there. But one of the, one of my goals of this morning is to equip you as, as a congregation, as a church body, 
to begin to understand that, yes, there are some things that are difficult. There are difficult passages in the Bible, but they are resolvable. And they are things that we can look through and study, and they should not cause us to question the inerrancy of God's Word. That this is God's very Word, and it is trustworthy and dependable. And we are in a society where there is an attack on that inerrancy over and over and over, and the attack comes with many of the examples we'll talk about today. I've only chosen 10 out of the hundreds, and maybe they won't hit the one you've heard. Maybe they will hit some of them you've heard. But my, my goal was to give an idea of how to resolve these things. Justin Martyr, who was, who was killed for his faith in AD 148, he wrote, I am entirely convinced that no scripture contradicts another. And if there's one banner for this morning, I would wholeheartedly agree with that. I am entirely convinced that no scripture contradicts another. It is completely trustworthy. Now this morning, because of the nature of the morning, we're going to be looking at some of these contradictions and, and looking at examples of them. We're going to look through a lot of scripture this morning. And so I've put a lot more of it on the screen this morning. Also, if you have your, um, your device, if you use the Uversion app, the Uversion Bible app, if you go down to more in the bottom right corner and go to events, there is an event, a live event for Village Bible Church this morning that has all the verses, and then you can just scroll up as we go if you're an app user. Now, now please don't spend the next half hour trying to figure out how to load version on your phone if you don't already use it. We'll do this other weeks as well. But um, this is our first week trying one of their live events, <clears throat> and it can be a great way to follow along. My goal is for you to see God's Word to actually know that we are reading God's Word rather than just hear me talk about it. And so that's why we have, we have several different ways this morning for us to go about that. So just by way of review, when we talked about the doctrine of inerrancy, we believe that the Bible is completely without error, inerrant. It has no fault. It has no discrepancy. It is completely without error in everything that it teaches. It is inerrant in its original authorship in all aspects, including historically, factually, spiritually, and does not affirm anything that is contrary to the fact. I know that that is a strong statement. I know that we cannot make that statement of any other book that has ever been written on this planet at any time. And that's why the Bible is so special and unique. It is God's very word without any error, defect, or fault. And so this morning, we want to come to that, and and that is the foundation for handling apparent contradictions, is how do we deal with this? Some of the verses that we used on inerrancy, Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? It's sort of like, really? Would the God of the universe say something and not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? In Proverbs 30, verse 5, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Psalm 18.30 This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. And so these verses say that if we can find a contradiction in here, if we can find an unresolvable issue, if it's lying to us, then those verses are wrong and God is wrong and He is a liar and He is not holy and He is not righteous. That's how important this is. Because then there is no salvation. There is no hope. And so we strongly hold to inerrancy. There are no lies. There are no mistakes. These are the very words of God. 
Grudem said, and I mentioned this before, if we deny inerrancy, we essentially make our own human minds a higher standard of truth than God's word itself. And we like to do that. We like to think we know better than any situation, that our opinion is right. But we do the same thing with God's word if we deny inerrancy. And so, yes, there are difficulties and they are all resolvable. And so we want to look at six different ways of handling apparent contradictions. Some people have three, four, I've seen 15, I've seen 17. We're just going to pick six of them and say, okay, how do we handle contradictions? How do we handle things that, that people try to use God's word to say that it's not true, to say that it is at fault? I don't know if you remember, we studied this in Luke. But um, Jesus was talking and the Pharisees came to him and they thought they had him trapped after the Sadducees. And they thought they had him trapped with scripture on the resurrection, right? And they told this whole story, what if a guy had a wife and his brother died? So then the next brother marries her, as is their custom. And then he dies and the next brother marries her. And, and so the Sadducees are like, see, there's a contradiction. There is no resurrection. For those that are saying that the Bible teaches there's a resurrection, it's wrong. And Jesus, before he answers them logically, he says this. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? Basically, he said, isn't really the reason you're wrong? Because you don't know what you're talking about. Because you don't know God's word. Because you haven't studied enough. And then he goes on to explain it to them. And they're just like speechless and they walk away. At the end, he says, you are quite wrong. And so today, we want to sort of take that same tack. Okay, there are things that are going to appear hard. But how can we begin to resolve them and understand that these are not wrong and a correct understanding of God's Word helps support that? And so the first apparent contradiction or, or a way to handle apparent contradiction, and this one's just a, a more of a way of going about the conversation. Number one, it's okay to say you don't know. And that you'll do some research. So many times we can get in situations where people will ask us a question. We're like, oh, no, I I don't know the answer to that. They might be right. Oh, the world is falling apart. My Christianity is all wrong. Or we might think if I don't answer them, they'll never turn to Christ. They'll think we're just stupid. No, it is good to say, I don't know, but I'll find out. I don't know, but let's research this together. And sometimes with people on questions, I've said, hey, you know, I'm not sure of that. Can we look at this together? You look at some verses. I'll look at some verses. We'll come together and figure out how this works out. And now you've started a conversation that engages someone in, in a winsome way that may very well turn out to change their mind. See, truth is never afraid of questions. And so when we come to hard passages of the Bible, These are not things we skip. When we teach through a book of the Bible, this is one of the reasons why our normal teaching is books of the Bible. We don't skip hard passages. And we've come across some. And and we look at different explanations. There's been some that I've presented three or four explanations to you and I've said, I don't know which one is right. But I know that there is a solution, that God has given us a way to think about this. And so truth is never afraid of questions. In fact, invite people into that process with you. Deal with issues head on and honestly and openly. There is something about it with the world when they see us skirting around a hard issue. It's obvious. It's just obvious. And it takes away from this idea that what we have is true. 
And so deal with it head on. Say, yeah, that's hard. Let's work on that. So then the, the next few get into some tools for how to do that. Number two, assume the Bible is correct in what it says and look for a solution that is non-contradictory. Assume that the Bible is correct in what it says and look for a solution that is non-contradictory. See, one of the things that those trying to disprove the Bible is they assume that any divergent accounts or any differences must be a result of lying or contradiction. That is not true. This goes back to the illustration I used as my opener. I can say different parts of my day yesterday without being contradictory. Even though they're different accounts, they're both true if you just merge them together. One of the rules that, that we follow, we, we just implicitly follow with literature and communication, is that we assume the person is telling the truth until they prove otherwise. Well, I hope. Otherwise, you're just really cynical. But we, 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 we assume that the person is telling the truth and, and less proven Otherwise, we give the author the benefit of the doubt, innocent until proven guilty. And so we, we want to take this into studying the Bible and say, okay, that looks different, but is there a rational explanation? Is there a reasonable explanation of why it's different? And so we start with the assumption that the Bible is in harmony with itself, and we start by looking for solutions. We ask, how does this verse fit with other verses? Because Scripture interprets Scripture. We always interpret difficult passages in light of clear passages. And and that way, we are seeing the harmony of how the Bible works together. See, often, you have two accounts that are different, but they're not contradictory, they're complementary. And by looking at both of them, if you heard all my descriptions of my day yesterday, you would have a fuller idea of what I did. I'm not lying about different things. I'm just giving different parts at different times to different people. And so we want to take these apparent contradictions and view them as challenges. So let's dig into it. Let's dig into a few of them. First one, how many angels were at the empty tomb? You can be interactive this morning. What? Some? Okay, that is, that is wimping out on the question. <laughs> how many angels were at the tomb? Two. Anyone want to say one? One. (laughs) So I have one, two, and some. Okay, let's look at what God's Word says. And again, you can either look at this in version, your your app, or on the screen. Um, And we start with Matthew. We're going to look at all four Gospels in this one. Matthew says in 28, verse 2, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. Okay, we can go on there. There's some, some great things there. How many angels is mentioned? One. How many angels? Mark. So let's jump to Mark 16, verse 4. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a right, white robe, and they were alarmed. Yeah, it would be two. How many angels there? One. Okay. So the answer is one, right, Joshua? You're, you're right. Okay, we'll just stop there. Let's look at Luke. We won't stop there. Luke 24, verse 4. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. How many angels? Two. So the Bible is wrong and we should go home. No? Let's see what John says. John 20, verse 12. 
And she saw two angels in white sitting there, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And so we have these four, four gospels, two only mention one angel, two mention two angels. How many angels were there? I'm going to say two, because John specifically uses the number, she saw two angels in white. Here's the thing. Is this a contradiction? This is a simple one to understand. It's simple, but yet many of the websites I looked at use this one as one of the, the proofs that the Bible is wrong. I can say, when I walked in this morning, I can say, you know, I saw Pastor Andrew and had a, a good conversation with him in a, in a prayer meeting in my office. And I could go to John and I can say, I saw Pastor Andrew and Pastor AJ in a, in a prayer meeting in my office. Have I lied? No. I've given you, like my first example, different pieces of the, the of what happened, not different sides of the truth, but Pastor Andrew was there. Pastor Andrew and Pastor AJ were there. The elders were there. The thing is, the first two Gospels, it would only be a problem if they used the word only. And they saw only one angel. And the, the fact is, they did see an angel, and probably one of the angels was the spokesperson that spoke to them. So in retelling the story, they tell it from the, the angel that's the spokesperson. But there were two there. And so do you see how that's actually fairly simple to resolve? And it's how we talk. As you're dealing with people on these, as much as you can come up with real-world examples that, that show how we talk and that this is normal, that's helpful. We do this all the time. And so Josh McDowell said this, and I put this in your notes, just because a report is incomplete does not mean it is false. This is a logical truth. Just because a report is incomplete does not mean it is false. Just because Matthew talked about one of the angels doesn't mean there wasn't more. And so that's one example. Next example. I'm sorry, this one's a little gruesome. So if... If that bothers you, just tune out for about five minutes. How did Sisera die in Judges? Do you remember Sisera? His, his, his wife helped him see the point. And um, she perhaps drove a tent peg through his temple. And, and based on what God wanted her to do. So let's look at this. Judges 5, 25 to 27. He asked for water and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet he sank. He fell where he sank. There he fell dead. Okay? So she gave him a glass of milk and helped him see the point. Judges 4, 21, chapter before. But Jael, the wife of Eber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. This was used as a contradiction. See, the Bible is false. How do you resolve that? The the, the passage in chapter 5 doesn't say she drove the tent peg through his temple while he was drinking the milk. That would be a little awkward anyway. How do you do that? But in fact, the chapter 4 says earlier in the story she gave him milk. And so in chapter 5 we see this, this condensing of the story. She gave him milk 
and then she killed him. In chapter 4, we see he's tired. She gave him milk instead of water, I think probably to help him go to sleep and, and sleep a little more sound. And then it says he went to sleep, and then she killed him. These are not, this is not a hard discrepancy, but it's used to, to say the Bible isn't true. And so we see a fuller description of the events when we look at both of the verses. Uh, one that's a little more difficult and one that um, we, we think we have a solution for, but we have to say we're not sure. How did Judas die? You guys remember Judas? Hung himself. Yeah, hung himself. Anyone want to disagree with that? He fell and burst his intestines open. Which one is true? Both are true. Let's read the passages. Also, we'll ask whose field was it? Because there's two um, apparent contradictions here that people use. Matthew 27, verse 5. We'll look at that first, 5 through 8. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he, and this is Judas here, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. It's been called the the field of blood to this day. So we see Judas hung himself, right? And with his money, the chief priest bought a field. Well, in Acts 1.18... A little bit later, Luke, who's a historian, he says this. Now this man acquired a field, speaking of Judas, with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Sorry, some of these are sort of gross. Which one's true? You said both. How can both be true? They, They seemingly are very specific and are contradictory. And so then we start to think, okay, how could this be true? And people of the time have said, well, he probably hung himself. And then as a, as a person dies, the body begins to bloat and the, the rope can, can wear out. The tree branch can break. And then he fell and, and he fell on the ground. And because he was bloated, everything just sort of went, boo. Not to get real gross. And, and we don't know for sure, but that would make sense. Others have said, well, especially in shame, if you took and you hung yourself over a hill or on the edge of a hill, you would roll down as you fell down and and your body would burst open. Interestingly enough, the traditional site for Judas' death is a cliff or a hill. I don't know how well you can see that. But this is the traditional site where they think Judas killed himself and probably up on the cliff or up on the hill hung himself on a tree and then fell down. And that is a possible explanation. It's a logical explanation. Now, did you notice the difference in who bought the field? In, in the first passage, it says that the chief, the chief priest went and bought the field, right? With his money, blood money. In the second passage, it says that, um, and, and specifically it says, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And in, in studying it, this one was like, okay, I'm not sure how to resolve that. And in studying it, it's real interesting. That money, that 30 pieces of silver, because it was blood money, the, the chief priests were not allowed to take that and use it for their own purposes in any way. And so for them to buy a field with that money, 
they would have had to attribute that field to whoever's money that was, and it could not have been theirs. And so really, they were acting as agents, uh, not at Judas's request, but they were acting with Judas's money and giving his name. So technically, he did acquire a field through the chief priests using their money to do it because they weren't allowed to, to ascribe this money to themselves. It, it makes sense. That one, especially when you look at the history and the culture, it explains itself. And so all of these things begin to help us understand how do we begin to resolve Bible passages. We start with an assumption that the author is genuine and they're telling the truth and we look for a way to resolve them. One more example on this one. Um, how many of the criminals hung with Jesus on the cross, the crosses on the other side, how many mocked him? I heard one, I heard two. So let's look at Scripture. Scripture's inerrant. And Mark 15.32 Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Those is plural. So both of them reviled him. Okay, in Luke 23, 39 and 40, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of of condemnation? So what appears in Luke, in Mark, is that two of the criminals mocked him. In Luke, we have evidence that one did and then one defended him. And, and again, this is fairly easy to resolve when we understand this is over a several hour period of time. And it really looks like both criminals started mocking him. And that was the, the, the initial state. And as one of the criminals saw everything that was happening and saw what was happening with, with Jesus and the words of Jesus and what was happening around him, that one of them repented and turned to Christ. See, one of the things that, that if, if this is a contradiction, we're assuming that these events happened at the same point in the crucifixion. Whereas they could have been two hours apart where, where attitudes have changed. And if we take it on its face as a valid source, we have to then assume that the, the second thief changed his mind. He repented. And he came to Christ. And so... When we think of contradictions, so many presuppositions and assumptions go into that that aren't true. Things like these are both, these verses are both referring to the exact same moment in time, and they're not. And so we want to make sure that we are thinking of these things. How are you doing? That's a number of examples already. Swimming through them? Hopefully it gives you some ideas of how to resolve these things. Point number three of how we handle difficulties. Make sure you understand the context and genre of the passage. Make sure you understand the context and genre of the passage. And so this involves making sure that that we understand what's around it. So many times, failing to understand the context helps... It means that we don't understand why decisions were chosen that were chosen of how it was written. If I ask, what time does church end? You all know the context. And you might say 11 o'clock, knowing full well that half the time we don't end at 11. It's 11.01, 11.02. Every now and then 10.55, it's a really good day. (laughs) 
today, maybe 11.30. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> the context, though, helps you understand that that answer is an approximation because it's rounded. You don't know the time. And so if, if I said 11 o'clock and that day we ended at 11.02, you don't come back to me and say, you are such a liar. Because the context, you understand that I'm giving an approximation of an event that you all don't know when it's going to end. You're trusting me. (laughs) So context matters. It's very different than if your health insurance company has a form and says, what is your weight? Or what is your blood pressure? They're looking for a little more precision. They don't want me to say about 150. If you round in creative ways. (laughs) No, no, the context says this needs to be an exact number. And so context matters. Let me give you another example of, um, of where context matters. Did you know that the Bible says there is no God? In Psalm 14.1, it says, there is no God. In fact, there it is. What do you do with that? What was that? Where's the rest of it? Read the rest of it. Context is missing here. I have taken one phrase. Actually, that's not even the whole verse. There's the whole verse. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Does that change the meaning? Context matters. As I was reading through some of these sites, some of the, in fact, this was one that was used on some of the sites. I'm like, are you stupid? Sorry. This was to myself. It wasn't in a conversation with someone. I'm like, read the rest of the verse. Now, this is a simple one. I know that this is an easy one, and I cherry-picked this one. But it was there. Um, genre matters. We read Proverbs and the generalisms in Proverbs differently than we read in a historical narrative. Pastor Andrew is doing a great job of that in his Sunday school class to explain that and, and how we, we read different parts. An example here from Proverbs. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5 about the fool. Verse 4, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Verse 5, the very next verse, Answer a fool according to his folly lest he be wise in his own eyes. Well, that's two verses in a row. One says don't answer him. The next one says answer him. See, the Bible has errors. This was on the sites too. But if you understand Proverbs, that these are general wisdom principles of how you apply truth to different situations, you begin to understand the wisdom of these two statements. There are times not to answer a fool. There are times to say, I'm going to let you be a fool. Have a nice day. I'm going to Taco Bell. Because if we get into that with some people, it doesn't work and it degrades and it just, it, there's times not to answer. And, and I think you know that there's times not to answer a fool. Now, there are times that you hear something foolish and it is okay to answer it. And you begin to ask questions. And there are times that you can see that maybe there's a way of helping the person change their mind. There are times where it's just foolishness from, from pride that maybe an answer will help that and will help knock them down a notch or two. That's verse 5. And so these are both true verses depending on the circumstances. And when we understand the purpose of Proverbs, we understand that to be true. So we, under, we want to understand context and genre. 
Number four in your notes is very similar, but goes a little deeper. We need to study and use proper interpretation to make sure we know what a passage means. Study and use proper interpretation to make sure we know what a passage means. Many assumed contradictions are the results simply of improper interpretation, of an improper understanding. So read a passage several times. Then use tools, use commentaries, use resources. Come talk to one of our, us as pastors, and, and we have tools. And we may not know all the answers, but we can, we can help you research it. We have tools that can do that. And we're going to be talking in a few weeks about James chapter 2 which is often used as an example of contradictions in, in Scripture. James chapter 2 talks about faith and works, and, and faith isn't enough. It needs to have works with it, as some people have interpreted that. Well, we're going to explore that, and in a few weeks you'll get the answer to that one. But a different example that I want to give you, were plants in Genesis created before man or after man? Before man, Right? Right, makes sense. Okay, we'd go to Genesis 1, um, 12 through 13 and the 26. In Genesis 1, talking about the third day, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kind, and on. In verse 26, the sixth day, which incidentally the sixth day is after the third day. Sixth day, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock. So we have a clear thing. Plants were made on day three. Man on day six. We're good. But then in Genesis 2, and again, this was a commonly used objection to the truth of God's word. In Genesis 2 verse 5, listen to this. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground, And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden after man was created in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. See, Bible's false. How do you answer that one? This is one that is just really helpful to do more research and to, to do more study. Do you know that the words for plants in Genesis 2, the, the Hebrew words are different from Genesis 1? Now, you, you don't necessarily get that. Maybe your study notes will say something like that. But in Genesis 2.5, the word for bush of the field and small plant of the field, these are referring to tended plants, cultivated plants, crops. Whereas in Genesis 1, we just had a, a word for all of the plants and, and, and all of the vegetation. It's a different word, and we, we, we can't see that in English. The meaning of the original language sometimes is obscured in English. It's rare. I don't want you to go home thinking we can't read our, our English Bible. But this is where extra tools and extra study, when there's a difference like this, can help us. And so we see that in Genesis 2, 5 through 8 is talking about gardened plants, which is why the garden was created afterwards, or, or tended plants. that They just weren't cultivating the ground yet because there was no man. It says that. There was no one to do it. And so God created man, and now we can cultivate and tend a field. That's just an example of where further study and further understanding can help us out. We talked about some of the things 
in inerrancy about the Bible can be inerrant and certain things can be true. And I just want to review these quickly. I may skip some of these examples. You can study them on your own. They're all in your notes. The Bible can be inerrant and use ordinary language, rounding or figures of speech. And so we see that. I talked about how far my house is away from here, right? Remember that? And it's three point, it's, I could say I live three miles away, but actually, if you do Google Maps, it's 3.2. If you take Ninth Street, it's 3.3. Crow flies, it's different. I talked about that, right? And so depending on the context, in my normal language, I'm going to use different numbers. The Bible's the same way. That doesn't challenge inerrancy. Rounding. We round all the time. How, how old are you? We round to the nearest year usually. We don't give the number of days or the number of months or the number of seconds. When someone does, we think that's a little weird because we don't talk like that. And, and rounding is a thing. In the example, well, I'll do this one because I know we have a lot of engineers in the room. This one's fine. Example of pi. And I, I don't mean we're going to have pi afterwards, but pi is in 3.14 and we just had pi day and all that good stuff. First Kings 7.23. Then he made the sea of cast metal. And there's a picture of it up there. It's a giant, a giant basin. It was round 10 cubits from brim to rim, brim to brim. That's your diameter. Five cubits high and a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. Now, those of you that, that love your math, what's wrong with that? Everyone's like, I have no idea. What's, what's the formula for circumference? Pi times diameter, right? Well, if you, if you do the math here, that's assuming that pi is 3. No, pi is 3.14, and it actually goes on and on and on. The fact is, any representation of pi rounds, because it, it, it's a number that keeps going. And so some have used this to say the Bible isn't even right on science. Well, actually, they're rounding, to, to, they're rounding their cubits. And cubit wasn't even necessarily a precise measurement because it was from your, your fingertip to your elbow. And that could vary slightly from person to person. So this is absolutely right, but they're rounding. The Bible can be inerrant and use loose quotes. And, and I, I mentioned there Peter as he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Um, one of the other gospel writers says, he just says, he said, you are the Christ. Someone else said the Christ of God. All those are true, but it's, it's taking and it's a loose quote and they are summarizing what he said. The Bible can also be inerrant and write symbolic poetry or use other metaphors. And you can look up Revelation 7.14 on your own because it's obvious that that's symbolism. We don't wash a robe with blood. But I want to get to the other two, two statements and then we want to end with something a little different. Number five, the Bible does not approve of all it records. The Bible does not approve of all it records. And sometimes it's recording history that is accurate, but, but what was said in that history isn't accurate. And so people say, oh, the Bible's false. You know, so you, you come to Job, and, and much of Job is his friend's advice to him. That friend's advice is not the Holy Spirit's advice. In fact, God comes at a later point and says, your friends, they're off the mark. Let me tell you the truth. And so some of the things in there are going to be like, oh, we don't hold to that. No, we don't, because it's recording what his friend said. You know, we, we could look at 1 Kings 11.3, talk about Solomon. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. Ha, see? 
Bible tells me how many wives I should have. No, 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 no. No, don't go, don't go out with that message. It goes on to say, and his wives turned away his heart. It records what actually happened, but also if you read Scripture, it says this was not a good idea. In fact, it turned him away from God, and it was, was part of his problem. You know, Satan's lies in Genesis 3, they're recorded, but they're not true because they're lies. And point number six, last point. This is from Josh McDowell. That's why it's in quotes. And I, I don't want to steal his point, but I just couldn't word it any better. The unexplained is not necessarily unexplainable. The unexplained is not necessarily unexplainable. Don't assume we've found all the archaeological or scientific discoveries. Don't assume we've discovered everything about the languages. There are things that are hard that we may not yet have great resolutions for. But that doesn't mean they aren't there. That doesn't mean they're unexplainable. You know, I mentioned earlier when we were talking preponderance of evidence about the Hittites, and people use that against Scripture and say, there's no evidence of the Hittites, it's lying. And then they found their capital in Turkey and all this stuff about the Hittites and that they were present in, in force during the same time that the Bible says they were. It just wasn't discovered yet. So we have to be careful to understand these things are still being discovered. Village, the Bible is the trustworthy word of God. It is dependable. And today, I, I know this is just a taste of some of the things that are going to be thrown at it, of why it's false, and I want you to see and start to develop tools that you can defend God's word, that, that when you hear something like that, it isn't going to throw you for a loop and you're not going to abandon your faith because we have a reasonable faith in a good, righteous, holy God who has given us his word completely without error. And as we end this series, we end by the question of, okay, if this is God's word, what am I doing with it? What am I doing with it? Am I letting it change me? Am am I letting it affect my life? Am I letting it control my life and rule my life and direct my life? Because if it is, you've got to be in it. You've got to be studying it and reading it or hearing it. This can't be something that's an add-on to our life. It has to be core to our life. A man once complained to Mark Twain that the Bible was all jumbled up, inconsistent, and filled with passages he could not understand. Mark Twain replied, I have more difficulty with the passages I do understand than the passages I do not understand. Isn't that true? There's enough clear in there that we don't even have to get into these things that we're talking about today, debatable things, to say, am I following God's word? And Mark Twain knew that it is hard to follow God's word. But that's what we're called to do. It's hard because we don't want to. It's hard because it flies in the face of our natural self. You know, we've spent seven, t- seven lessons on the word of God because it's that important. And as a church, I want us to be equipped to understand the importance and know how to handle God's word. But what I'd like to do is end today by going back and reading Psalm 119. We've read portions of that every week. And, and you notice I didn't start that way this week because we're ending that way this week. And rather than read it together, I want you to listen to it this morning. And so I'm going to read a stanza. Some of the pastors are going to read stanzas. Some of the elders are going to read stanzas. 
Listen to it, but if you, and have your Bible open, follow along. But let God's word and this song about God's word impact us. Let it infiltrate our hearts to where we develop the same love and the same attitude towards God's word as we find in this chapter. Psalm 119. Thanks be to God for his word. Lord God, we end today in prayer. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your commandments, for your statutes, for your law. Because in the end, it means you revealed yourself to us so we can have relationship with you and follow you. So we could know the gospel that you died on the cross for our sins, that you rose again on the third day, that you took the penalty for our sins on yourself and we can have relationship with you and be reconciled to you. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your word. May you challenge us to be a church that follows your word, that obeys your word, that loves your word, Lord, and holds it dear. In your name, amen.